Romans 8 again this morning. And in this chapter, we are looking at the sanctified life of the believer. Paul has been showing us the difference between believer and unbeliever. In a lot of the verses that we've gone through, the difference between one who has their mind set on the flesh and one that has their mind set on the spirit. In talking about sanctification, he started way back at the beginning of chapter 6, and we've seen that as those who belong to Jesus Christ through faith, we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. That means we've been baptized into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. And what that means is that we are now identified with him. Paul will tell the Colossians in chapter 3 of that letter that uh, we are hidden in Christ. And having died with Christ, that means that we are now free from sin and we are free from the law. And he talked about that in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. There's no longer an obligation for uh, us to serve the Mosaic law and its requirements because the flesh of those under the law was weak and couldn't keep the law's requirements. And that's why Paul said in verse 6 of chapter 7, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We serve, Jews, Gentiles, anyone who is saved, no longer in oldness of the letter, that was the law, but we serve in newness of the spirit. And that reference there is talking about a believer's new life with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who now resides and makes his abode in us. We looked at that in our last study, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that allows us to live lives as those sanctified, as those who are set apart for God, that live lives that are now pleasing to him. We're able to do that now. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw that was a contrast with those who are still in the flesh. We went through that contrast in the first four verses of the chapter. Those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. God sent his son to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. The law required righteousness, which no one could meet. So God sent his son to provide the means by which we could be declared righteous, by which anyone who believes could be declared righteous, believing in his atoning work on the cross. Now, having believed, having gone through that process, there is no more condemnation for us. Those who walk according to the spirit now and no longer walk according to the flesh. He told us in verse 5 of the chapter, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. He presented that contrast. If you are in the Spirit, if you are saved, if you are no longer under condemnation, all of those things being synonymous, they're all part and package of the believer's life. Then you are a person who sets your mind on the things of the Spirit and no longer on the things of the flesh. The mindset on the flesh is death, he said in verse 6. In verse 7, he said it's hostile towards God and it's not able to subject itself to God. In verse 8, he said it cannot please God. Those are all true of the unbeliever, not the believer. But when we got to verse 9, then he started to present the other side, which is where we spent most of our time last week. The Holy Spirit 
dwells in you. He brings life to you. He enables you to live a life of putting to death the things of the flesh, those sinful deeds that still sometimes try to take hold of us. The last part of chapter 7, he showed that struggle that we have and put forth a question in verse 24 of chapter 7, who will set me free from the body of this death? The answer to that question is what we saw, what we've been seeing in here in chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he said in verse 10, is life. And he who raised Christ from the dead, with whom we are now hidden, identified with in every way. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit residing within us is the promise, is the guarantee that we will be raised from the dead as well. That is the future hope that we have, the guarantee that there is therefore no condemnation for us. There is only the future hope of the glory that will be ours someday. When these bodies of sin will be raised up, when they will be transformed and the corruption and death and effects of sin will be done away with in every way. That is what awaits the Christian. That is what awaits every Christian. And where Paul is going with his argument here in the 8th chapter of Romans. We'll see that as we go through here. Now, we've talked many times about the three aspects of our sanctification. There's a past, a present, and future aspects of sanctification. The past was when we were freed from the power and the condemnation from sin. That happened at the moment of our justification when we believed. There's a future aspect where when we will be freed from the very presence of sin in every way. We will no longer have to deal with, its, with sin and its effects and its temptations. But the present aspect is what sometimes gives us pause. Because that is dealing with the ongoing struggle, the ongoing life that we have. Even what Paul presented in the last verses of chapter 7. That aspect of our lives that caused him to tell us when he said in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 8, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This idea that he talks about here of putting to death the deeds of the body by the Holy Spirit. I think that's something that sometimes gives us pause. I know it does for me. When you hear that, you think, how exactly does that work? It's one thing to say we're to live by the Spirit. But what does that mean? I mean, Paul here touches on it. He said in the next verse, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And that's a good aspect of it, are being led by the Spirit of God. But once again, what is that? What does that look like day to day? Because that's the what now portion of this, the living today, living by the Holy Spirit. Before we continue in Romans, what I want to do is I want to take you to a couple passages that talk about this a little bit. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's good to flesh this out just a little bit since Paul mentions it here, but sometimes I think we struggle with how we actually live this out. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself. If I am, feel free to tune me out for just a few minutes. But if you're like me, then hopefully this will be somewhat worthwhile. So before we get into Romans, turn over with me to Galatians chapter 5. And this is a 
a passage that we've, we've been to here before a few times because it directly relates to what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8. But he's talking in the first part of chapter 5 about no longer submitting yourself to the yoke of slavery to the law. That was a problem for the Galatians. Right? Just like we're saying it was something that he addressed with the Romans. They were running back to the law, putting themselves back under something to which they had died. But down in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, we come to a verse that we've seen several times. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So he issues a command here, and it's a, it's a present imperative command, which is really just a fancy way of saying, keep doing something that you're already doing. So keep walking by the Spirit. And what will happen? You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. To walk by the Spirit means to live your lives under the control, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, submitting yourself to Him, yielding yourself to where He leads. Just like we saw in Romans chapter 8, where He said, Sons of God are those that are led by the Spirit, right? Where the Spirit's leading, we follow. So again, it has to do with following along with where the Holy Spirit is leading, submitting to Him, yielding ourselves to him and following after where he would lead us. So turn over to another passage, Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul is warning the church against walking unwisely. And look what he says in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So walk like a wise man, not like an unwise one, right? Walking, again, is living your life, just like we saw in Galatians 5, right? Walk by the Spirit. It's living your life. It's how you conduct yourself. It's what you do. Don't do it. Don't walk like a fool. Well, how do we know how a fool walks? He says in verse 17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So you have the will of the Lord, and you have foolishness, and they are opposed to one another. That shouldn't surprise us. They're opposed to each other. Well, how do we know what the will of the Lord is? Well, the Lord tells us His will, right? We have 66 books of His will. We have His Word, don't we? We know the will of the Lord through the Bible, through the Word that He's given to us. But words on a page isn't all that we have. That's kind of what the law was. That was words written down. We also have the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so he says next in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now that drunk with wine part here, you have to understand in Asia Minor in these days, there were religious practices going on in that area where they would use alcohol or wine in their religious practices and they would put themselves into a drunken stupor. And they would indulge in their every debased desire doing these so-called worship services. And they would let the wine take them over. That's what it was supposed to do. They were supposed to drink so much that it would take them over and then they felt that that would then prepare them for what the gods wanted them to do. And that's what Paul is referring to here with this reference. You don't get drunk. You don't fill yourself up with wine and let that control you like they do, like the unbelievers do. What do you do? You allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. 
you submit yourself to him. And then we see the results of that when you look at verse 19. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns with spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In the life of the believer, this is what yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit results in. These types of things, this is not a complete list, but it's a descriptive list of the life of the believer. And that, again, is the contrast. Now, keep that list in mind and look with me at one more passage. Turn over to the book of Colossians, the third chapter of Colossians. And I know, I know we're hitting this quickly. I didn't mean for this to be a complete study on this, but I just want to kind of get us thinking along the right lines here. In Colossians chapter 3, keeping in mind what we just saw in Ephesians 5 with the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit, look down with me at verse 16 of Colossians 3. Here he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, in this verse here, he doesn't say anything about the Spirit, does he? He talks about the Word of Christ. He talks about the teachings of Christ, God's Word, our instructions, which we find here, right, in our Bibles. We need to have that dwelling richly within us. And what is the outpouring of that? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You notice that this list here that he presents in Colossians 3 is very similar, the same stuff that he's talking about back in Ephesians chapter 5. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness to God, everything that we do in thankfulness. You might say, but Matt, in Ephesians chapter 5, he also talked about subjecting ourselves to one another. Yep. And what does he go on to talk about in the following verses? Wives be subject to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Again, he goes to the exact same place, being, subje- being in subjection to each other, fulfilling your responsibilities to each other. Now, what's the point? Why did I take you to these verses? Because as believers, we follow after the will of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit of God by following after what he has revealed to us in his word. It's not dreams that come to us in the night. It's not still small voices that we hear when we're driving in our car. It's not, being, it's not having the Spirit throw us down on the ground and, and filling our heads with instructions that no one else could hear and we, we get a word from the Lord. That's not what we're talking about. We follow where the Spirit leads by knowing His Word, by yielding to it, by understanding it, and then ultimately by doing it, by walking by his word. We could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We won't, but we could. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we read that we understand the things of God because of whom? Because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, giving us understanding into the things of God and understanding that the believer doesn't have because the unbeliever doesn't have the enabling power of the Holy Spirit within them. We could also go to the book of James, which talks about the man who hears the word of God. And it's like looking into a mirror. 
And that man sees what he needs to do in the mirror when he looks into the Word of God and he sees what he needs to do. And he can either fix what he sees, gets the toothpaste off of his, off of his mouth or combs his hair, or he can just walk away. And the point there is that he needs to be an effectual doer of God's word and not merely a hearer of it. And that is what being led by and following after the Spirit is all about. Being led by and being filled with and walking by the Holy Spirit of God. That is what, when Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the sons of God are led by the Spirit, we are the ones that have the Holy Spirit residing within us. And he has given us his word and he gives us understanding into his word and we have the responsibility to follow now after where he is leading. I used the example last time of, of a child walking a child through a, a, a china shop or a shop with, you know, and maybe an antique shop with lots of glass figurines or whatever, right? It's that child's responsibility to follow after where mom and dad say, Look into my eyes. Don't touch anything. Do exactly what I say. And when they do what they're told, and when they focus on mom and dad, and they don't touch anything like they're told, they're fine. But when they start to wander, and they take their eyes off of where they're supposed to follow, that's when they get into trouble. And that's the same idea that I think we have as believers who are led by the Spirit. This is how a believer responds to the leading of the Spirit in his life. The Holy Spirit is with us always. He doesn't come upon us only at certain times. He is always there. We don't need to invite him in. He has made his abode with us. He resides in us. We simply need to follow along with where he is already leading. And in order to do that, we need to know his word. We need to know his commands, his instructions for how we are to live our lives. We find that in Scripture. And then knowing them, that's what we need to follow. That's what we are to be doing as believers, as sons of God, his children, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So hopefully that was a helpful clarification. I didn't want to muddy the waters for anyone. But after Paul talked about the struggle that we have in these bodies... And we talked about how the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. I wanted to touch on how we take that next step and do what it is that we're supposed to be doing. What we need to do as his children. As those who have been justified and now live in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So we stopped our study last time in verse 17. After talking about our adoption into the family of God. And we looked at the beginning of verse 17 where it said, And if children heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are now children of God, adopted into the family of God. And that means that we are fellow heirs with Christ, guaranteed to be with him one day in glory. It's a continuation on that theme that Paul is going to take us through in the following verses in the section that we're going to look at today. And he ended on that high note last time, belonging to God, heirs of God. But now we get to the end of verse 17. And we have to come down off that high mountain, right? I hope everyone agrees that's a pretty high mountain. We're children of God. We're fellow heirs with God. You can't really get any higher than that. But now we're going to come down a little bit because we anticipate, that's what we anticipate in the future, but we are living today. And so look at what he says next. If indeed we suffer with him, 
so that we may also be glorified with him. So the next thing he says is, if indeed we suffer with him. Okay, now wait a minute. This was going pretty good until now. What do you mean suffer? What is this talking about? Did I forget to mention the sanctified life of the believer will involve suffering? Paul has already mentioned this to us. If you turn back to chapter 5 for just a minute, the first verse is there. He started off chapter 5 saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. There we are. We have been justified. Now we have hope. We exult. We rejoice in the hope of being glorified one day. That's what we've been talking about. But now look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We also exult in what? Tribulations. Bummer. There it is again, right? Now as we come to chapter 8, he brings it up. He brings up this same idea again. Those who belong to Christ, here is the reality of our present situation. There is suffering. There will be tribulations. I take it that sufferings encompass here a wide variety of things. We have physical sufferings that will be a part of the plan. We've already talked about living in these physical bodies. We do not live in the flesh in the sense that we are under its control, but we are still of flesh, right? We are still living in mortal bodies. And so at that point, at salvation, that doesn't change. It won't change until we are in glory someday. Until that time, we suffer along with everyone else in the world. Our bodies age. Our bodies go downhill. There are sicknesses and maladies that befall us. God hasn't taken that away from us as those that have been saved. So that's one aspect of it. But not only do we have conflict with the flesh in which we still reside, but as believers, we have conflict with the whole world. There's animosity between us and the world. We just read in, in chapter 5 that we are now at peace with God. We used to be at peace with the world, but now we're at peace with God. Well, we're not at peace with God and at peace with the world anymore. Now we're on the opposite side. Jesus tells the disciples in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's John 15, 18. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on, or for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. What do we expect to happen as Christians? Little Christs, right? The word Christian means little Christs. We have been saved from this world. We have been set apart from the power of the flesh to God. But where do we still live? Where are we still called to function? Right here in this world that is still in slavery to sin, that is still in opposition to God. 
we are not in the majority here. You may have noticed that. Christians are not in the majority in the world. Because of our association with Christ, there will be suffering for the believer. We live differently. We do things differently. There are things that we won't do that the world thinks that we should do. There are many things promised to the believer in the Bible. Not all of them are good things. This is one of those things. This is one of the things that will come. Before we receive our inheritance in glory, we will suffer here in this world. We will suffer physically in this life, and we will suffer for our faith in this life. All of these things are true of the life of the Christian. But it's also true that that's not all that there is for us. And so he finishes up verse 17 with this statement, in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is a positive outcome to this. There is, this is this, the same thing we saw back in chapter 5. Being identified with Christ is not simply a spiritual association, but, it's also, but it also means that we will suffer as he suffered and we will one day be glorified in our physical bodies as he has been glorified. We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. If we have come to true saving faith, then this is what's in store for us in the future, the future aspect of our sanctification. But first, there is a sanctified life in the now that we must live. A life that is lived in association with our Lord, a life that will involve certain degrees of suffering and hardships, trials. There is no health and wealth. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. As nice as that would be, sorry, that's a myth of the false teachers. There are no promises that God wants us to live our best life now. In fact, we won't live our best life now. Our best life won't come until we are in glory with the Lord. Here and now, God allows trials, even brings them into our life at times in order to perfect us and to sanctify us. So now that we've seen him introduce this idea of suffering before glory, we pick up in verse 18, and that's where he's going to continue to talk about, or that's what he's going to continue to talk about, suffering here in this life. And we look how he presents it, starting in verse 18. He starts off with the word for. He starts off with this connecting word as he's going to explain what he just said in verse 17. And he'll use this word continually through uh, the next several verses as he builds his argument. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is a key verse. The rest of the chapter really serves to clarify this verse. I consider. This is a weighing or calculating out of a decision. This is a settled conviction that Paul has on this matter. What is he convinced of? Well, he's just talked about suffering and glory. He's convinced that the sufferings that we experience as believers in the here and now, in this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits. No matter how bad things get in this life, in this present world, it is inconsequential compared to what awaits us. Now, we read this, and we might have issues with it. You read a statement like that, and you think, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I've suffered. 
you can't tell me that what I'm going through is inconsequential with what's going to be revealed. You haven't suffered like I've suffered. Well, the thing about this is whether you or whatever you or I have experienced, whatever degree or type of suffering that either one of us has been through does not change what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying here. But keep in mind that the Apostle Paul is the one that is saying this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul did have some perspective on what suffering looks like. Turn with me over to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want you to see that this isn't a flippant statement that Paul makes as one who's been sitting in his ivory tower somewhere and saying, oh, don't worry about the things that happened to you. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul spends a fair amount of time defending his ministry, his apostleship. And as a part of that, he talks about what he has suffered in defense for the gospel as a bondservant of Christ. He says in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, Times without number, often in danger of death. Five times, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul knew a little bit about suffering. He knew what it was like to suffer. And yet, he is still convinced that what he's saying is true. Turn back to chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, a little bit earlier in the book. We'll see what he said there. And keep in mind, his experiences that he presented in chapter 11 did not occur between what he wrote in chapter 4 and what he wrote in chapter 11. All these things that happened to him before he writes what he says here in chapter 4 as well. In chapter 4, he's talking about the same stuff. We're seeing here in Romans 8, in verse 14, he talks about knowing that he who raised Jesus will also raise us and be presented with him in glory. But look at what he says in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So here he's talking about the sanctification process. Outer man, these bodies decay. But the inner man, our heart, our mind, the part that has been changed already is being renewed, being sanctified. Look at the very next verse, 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What's he saying? That the sufferings of this present age, the things that we go through now, today, that are occurring here in this life, that's what he's calling momentary light afflictions when compared to the eternal weight of glory. 
That was Paul's settled conviction through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on this. And keep in mind, 2 Corinthians was written around the same time, probably a year or two before he wrote Romans. So all of the things that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians had already happened even when he says what he says in Romans chapter 8. In this life, there's suffering. We have pain and trials. We may not experience all the things that Paul experienced. We may experience things that we think are worse than what we saw in Paul's list. But as believers, we need to keep in mind that what we suffer here today, now in this life, is not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. These things today, they might be hard. They might be extremely difficult. No one is saying that they're not hard. No one is saying that they aren't gut-wrenchingly difficult. But they will come to an end after we are taken from this life when glory is revealed to us. That is the hope that we have that makes things bearable for us as God's children. So now in verse 19, Paul turns from the suffering to show us the glory, to reveal the glory to us. And he's going to start talking about the creation. He says in verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now he talks about the creation, created things. This would be the things that are separate from man, and I would say doesn't include angels as well. This is the creation, the plants, the animals, the mountains, the oceans. We know that this is distinct from us because later we'll see the longing that we have as believers. He's going to compare it to us. So what does the creation do? He says there is this anxious longing, eager awaiting. This is having your head stretched out, standing on your tiptoes. You get the impression of the, the little kid that wants to see over the fence who's standing on his tiptoes and he's trying to peer over the fence at something. That's the glimpse here. There's this anxious yearning to catch this glimpse of something. What is it waiting for? The revealing of the sons of God. Now in verse 14, he said that we are sons of God. In verse 15, he says we cry out, Abba, Father. In verse 16, we are the children of God. We are already the sons. We are already the children of God, but we have not yet been revealed as such. The world does not yet know us as the sons of God. People don't stop when they walk down the street and see a Christian and say, that's a son of God right there. Nobody does that. We recognize each other as sons of God because we know that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and he has given us that adoption because we know that that's true of believers. But we have not yet been revealed in glory. Why haven't we been revealed? Why hasn't God revealed us? Well, it's because Christ has not yet been revealed. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Presently, our life is hidden with Christ. That doesn't mean that we are in hiding, but we are identified with him. We are wrapped up in him. And he has not yet been revealed to the world. He has not yet come back to the world as the king, as the conquering king. Before, when he came, he was the suffering servant, right? But when Christ is revealed, those who are in him will be revealed along with him. 
This will be at his second coming when he returns to earth and we will return with him and his kingdom will be established here on the earth. So the creation is eagerly awaiting this time, but why? Why does it look forward to this time? Well, we see three things about the creation in verses 20 and 21. It says, first of all, well, okay, verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So the first thing that we see is that it was subjected to futility. This word for futility is emptiness. It's without purpose. It's the Greek word that in the Septuagint you read over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes for vanity. It is unable to fulfill the purpose that it was brought into existence for. It has become purposeless. It's no longer able to function as it was created to function. That's, this is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. It was part of that impact that Adam's sin had upon the world. If you'd look back in Genesis chapter 3, I'll just read it for time. I don't know if we'll get through everything today. But we saw this also back in chapter 5 when we talked about Adam's sin condemning the entire human race. But the effects of his sin were further reaching than even that. Genesis 3.17 says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. We know that there were consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, right? That impacted all of humanity. But Adam's sin impacted even the very ground. The the entire creation was subjected to corruption because of the sin of Adam. What about the animals? Animals died because of Adam's sin. They didn't sin, but death came to the animal world as well. Animals became dangerous. They weren't before, but they were after the fall. So all parts of the creation suffered because of the sin of Adam. And that's how the creation exists even today. We don't know of it any different. We know, we grew up walking through fields and getting thorns and thistles right, in our pant legs and and stepping on things, right, bugs attacking us and being afraid of the animals. That's how, that's the only thing that we know, but that is not what God created the creation to be. He also says that it was not willingly, it wasn't subjected to this willingly, and that's not because of anything that the creation did. It was not of its own will. The plants didn't disobey God. The animals didn't disobey God, but man did. And the sin of man brought about the curse of the entire creation. Creation was brought into existence to magnify God and bring glory to Him. And now it cannot accomplish that purpose because of sin. It says, because of Him who subjected it. God subjected it. The creation was cursed because of man's sin, but it was cursed by its creator. He is the one who subjected it to futility. But the third thing that we see here in verse 20, and actually carries on into verse 21, is that it is subjected in hope. This futility is not permanent, and it was never meant to be permanent. 
He goes on to explain this in verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a coming restoration promised to the creation. Even the creation anticipates the coming realization that it will once again be able to fulfill its purpose of bringing glory to God. Its future is linked to mankind's. When man sinned and was cursed, creation was cursed. When man is restored, so the creation will then be restored. When man enters into the fullness of glory that God has in store for him, for all those who believe, the rest of creation will be freed from the slavery of sin, from sin's effects, from the corruption that comes with sin, and be able to function with the freedom of glory as God had originally intended for it to function. It's important to note, the way that the creation is now is not how it was meant to be. And the curse to which God subjected it to be like this was never meant for it to be its normal uh, permanent state. Turn with me back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. The, the picture that we see here in Isaiah, he, he's talking about the kingdom in his Isaiah 11. He's talking about the way things are going to be and really the way that things were meant to be. But it is so foreign to us. Isaiah 11, look down at verse 6. Probably a very familiar passage to most of us. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is this what we see today? Is this a normal picture? Letting our kids go out and play with lions? Oh, there's a mountain lion in the area. Well, let your kid out. Go have, pet the kitty, right? No, we don't do that. Take your nursing child, sit it down right next to the cobra. Well, yeah, the kid's playing, grabbing the cobra's tail. Oh, it's funny. We laugh, take pictures. That doesn't happen today, does it? Yeah, I don't know if you heard that the, at the, the zoo this week, a cheetah got out of its enclosure. I didn't get out like in the general population, but it was out. And so what do they do? Oh, the cheetah's out. Everybody go look at it. And pet, no, they don't do that. They say, everybody get to someplace safe. And they put everybody, tell everybody go to a safe place. Why? Because cheetahs are dangerous, right? They might attack you. They might attack your kids. This picture here in Isaiah, when will this be? This is when the kingdom is established on earth. That's what this is a picture of, when Christ is reigning in glory on the earth. That's when the creation will function again as it did during the days of the garden, as it was meant to function. When it is back to functioning as it was created to function. Back in chapter 8 of Romans, continues on with this, verse 22. He says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And here we see that, that we are not the only ones suffering under the weight that sin has brought, but the creation groans and suffers as well, it says. Um, he's personifying 
the creation here once again. Um, it's not unusual for him to do that. He does that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God does that throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 12, for instance. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Personifying the creation. Personifying nature. Well, that's what we're seeing here. Here he's talking about it's suffering the pains of childbirth. It's an interesting, appropriate analogy that he brings up because of the immense, of the imminence of Christ's return. The creation is on the verge of glory. Most of the world would have us believe that the world is dying, and that's why we must preserve our resources. I have no problem with preserving resources if we want to preserve resources and being good stewards of all that God has blessed us with. But don't be fooled into thinking that those efforts are necessary in order to save this planet. There is a definite plan for this planet that will be realized, regardless of whether or not we're driving SUVs or electric cars. The suffering that this world is going through is comparable to the suffering of childbirth, not the pains of death. The creation is anticipating the glory that will be revealed when the kingdom is established. He uses the example of childbirth, where the pain and suffering and agony appear to be overwhelming, but the end result is glorious and beautiful. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand that pain. I wouldn't. I know many of you here, many of you ladies here do understand that. But Jesus talked about it in John chapter 16. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. It's that joy that the creation is anticipating because that's what comes after the painful part that must come first. Again, this is all related to what he started talking about back up in verse 18, the suffering that we go through now that isn't comparable to the glory that is revealed to us. It goes on in verse 23, and he says, And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Not only does the creation groan and suffer turmoil, but so do we, he says. Now he's turning it back to apply to us, to how this applies to us. But we ourselves groan within ourselves. We have this same type of suffering within us as believers. We join with the creation in the anticipation of glory. This is a discussion of believers because even though we suffer Internal suffering, external suffering, sufferings of all kinds, we suffer in hope. There is hope at the end of our suffering. Those who aren't believers don't have this type of hope. We as the children of God have the first fruits of the Spirit, he says here. What is that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit himself. We have him indwelling us. We've seen this already. The Holy Spirit is our seal. He is our pledge that all of this will take place in us. But it's not just that we have the Spirit, but it's taking into account all that He does in our lives. It's His ministry in us. He calls it the first fruits because what the Spirit does now is not yet complete. 
his ministry isn't finished because we have not yet been glorified. The way that the Holy Spirit enables us to live in this world is only a sampling or a glimpse of the glory that awaits us. This adds to our eager anticipation. We're just getting a taste of the glory now by having the Holy Spirit ministering within us, enabling us. But there's so much more in store for us when we, when we realize our full adoption as sons, our full inheritance. That's when we are in glory. That's when, what we are eagerly waiting for. Now, he says adoption of sons, but we ask ourselves, well, why are we already adopted? He already talked about us being adopted back up in verse 15, right? Yes, we are adopted, but we have not yet entered, entered into all that that adoption entails. We're like the adopted child that has all the paperwork that's been gone through, and now we fully belong to, and, and we are fully with that loving family, and we're waiting still in the country in which we were adopted but we have not yet gone home to live where we are going to live, to be all that we are truly meant to be. And what does this entail? It entails the redemption of our bodies that will bring our salvation to completion when this body will be transformed. Turn with me over to, we'll just go to one passage. Uh, Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just see one passage on this. I had two, but for time, we'll just do one. The other one was in 1 Corinthians 15, and we've spent some time there in the past. So, But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we see the same idea. He speaks here of our bodies, these bodies in which we currently dwell, as a house, as our dwelling place, which will be transformed. He says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that that... so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. You see, the idea here is that today we are living in this earthly tent. This is a temporary dwelling. This is not our permanent dwelling, but it is one that's mortal. We long for what is mortal of the flesh that is is dead, this body that we live in, to be swallowed up by life, to be given over to that which will be alive forever. The same thing that we saw or that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's immortal, there's immortality. And once again, in verse 5, he talks about the Holy Spirit is the pledge, the guarantee of this, the earnest money that we talked about in our last study that guarantees our future hope. You understand the Concept of earnest money, right? You put something down in order to guarantee that you'll have something in the future. That's what the Holy Spirit is in us. He's our pledge. And this is why we groan. This is why we wait eagerly, because what is in store for us is infinitely better than what we have now. Would I prefer to live in a body without pain? Would I prefer to live in a body without sadness, one that doesn't get sick? 
Absolutely I would. We would all prefer that, right? We should all long and groan for that time when that will be reality. Because that's what's coming. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is what awaits you. Okay, we'll take the last two verses together here. Verse 24 and 25. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. This, these two verses, this is where it gets real. This is where the rubber meets the road. We are children of God, and we will inherit all that God has for us. We will be with Him in glory. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that is 100% absolutely true for you. That is real. That is reality. But we also have trials in this life. In the present time, the now time, it's what He started off this section with. Those trials and sufferings are there. They seem overwhelming. They are not trivial things. We lose loved ones. We lose jobs. Houses burn up in fires. We might have persecution or legal consequences that come from taking a stand for our faith. Serious things occur in our lives here and now. And there is no guarantee that we will recover from some of these things. We might lose a job, never get another job, become homeless. Right? We might get sick have some type of cancer that we might not ever be cured from. That is all real as well. That is also reality. But now we have verses 24 and 25 here which show us the bridge of that gap between those two things that are real. And it's all about hope. We have been saved in hope. That means that when we were saved... Our complete salvation was never meant to happen all at once. There is that future aspect of it that is still yet to come that was true from the moment we were saved, and it is still true for us today. If it was true today, if we had, if we had already been completed, glorified, then it isn't about hope anymore. If we, were, if we were glorified at the moment of our salvation, then it's no longer about hope. That's what the last half of verse 24 is talking about. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he's already seen? I have never seen a glorified body. Neither of you. Apart from those who saw Christ risen from the dead 2,000 years ago, no believer has seen a glorified body. Certainly no one knows what their own glorified body looks like. If we could see it, then we wouldn't be hoping for it. You don't hope for what you see, for what you already have. You have it. There's no hope at work there, right? There's young people that are hoping to get married someday. I don't hope for that. I don't hope to get married someday. Why? I'm already there. I'm married, right? I'm in it. I don't hope for it anymore. So hope is something that we can't see. It's something that we don't already have. Where the difficulty comes in, in for us is in dealing with things today, dealing with sufferings and trials today, because what are those? Those are things that I can see. Those are things that I do touch. Those are things that are right in front of my face. So I have what's right in front of me, and it threatens to overwhelm me, but I also have what Paul is saying here and what I can expect in the future. And I am supposed to live my life with that anxious anticipation for what's in the future. How can I do that? It's what we talked about at the beginning of our lesson. 
It's going where the Spirit leads. It's understanding and accepting what God has revealed in His Word and living our lives in light of what He has promised to us. That's what Paul is telling us here. I have hope because I know the one and only true God. I am His child. I can cry out to Him as my Father through the Holy Spirit who indwells me. He has guaranteed in me these things that will come about one day. There is no question that these things will take place. I wait eagerly for the day that He will transform my body from this corrupted rag that I wear now to one that is in His very likeness. How can I wait eagerly for it? It says here, with perseverance. It is waiting that we last through that we don't give up on. Believers persevere in our waiting. And it's the hope that we have in the promises of God that sustain us as we wait. That's where the believer's eyes should be fixed, on the hope that God has revealed to us. As we go through trials, personal trials, trials in our church, trials with our families, whatever trials we may have, we fix our eyes on that hope because that is 100% guaranteed to us. It is coming for us someday as His children who have been justified by faith. I pray that that is where our minds are focused. Not on this world, not on the trials that are going on around us, but on what awaits us, what is in store for us. That is what sustains us. That is what allows us to carry on, to submit to Him, to sacrifice ourselves to Him daily. Fix your eyes on the glory that awaits Because that's what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us here. And that's how Paul lived. And you can be rest assured that all those trials, all those things that Paul mentioned that he suffered through, today, right now, Paul's not giving those things a second thought. Because he he knows the end of that. And he doesn't care about those at all. Let's close in a word of prayer.